I'm going to ask you to keep your Bibles open to Exodus chapter 3. That's going to be our text this morning. And I want to bless the Lord and praise God for His goodness this morning. Everybody loves a great story of redemption, don't we? If you take a look at most of the movies that you watch, they're stories of redemption. The, the underdog overcomes, you know, and we love those stories. It's just innate for us. In the kingdom of God, that would describe many people today. Many of us were underdogs. Many of us, by the grace of God, have overcome many things um, in our lives through the power and the grace of God. You know, I, I, I entitled this message this morning, Having an Encounter with God. And I want to put out a few premises right from the very beginning. Number one, I believe that you can have an encounter with God in this day and age. That what we're going to read about today isn't just limited to the Old Testament. It's not limited to the New Testament. It is in the Gospel. You can have an encounter with God. If you look back through history and you look back through church history, you see many men, many women that have had divine encounters with God. I think about Charles and John Wesley. You know, when John Wesley set forth to America, he originally came here to be a missionary to the Indians in Georgia. And he landed in Savannah full of, you know, great visions. He was going to go out there, he was going to save the Indians, and they were going to come by throngs, they were going to come by throngs to him. And it turned out his experience in America, his experience in Georgia, was an abstract failure, if we measure it by human terms. Matter of fact, if you've ever been to Savannah, Georgia, you know that the, the city is divided into squares. And in one of the squares is a big statue of John Wesley, who came preaching to the Indians who took a ship back to England, defeated, discouraged, just about to give up. And then something amazing happened. He was invited to a Bible study and a prayer meeting. It was at Aldersgate in London. And in it were a few bunch of men that were really zealous Matter of fact, they were frowned upon by the culture and the society around them. And John Wesley and his brother Charles went to say, let's see what this thing is all about. And as they were there, they started to realize that what these men are praying for, what these men are asking for, is a genuine, spontaneous, authentic move of God. And then one day on May 24th, by the way, that's my birthday, so I run with good company. On May 24th, I forgot the specific year in 17, the Spirit of God descended on that prayer meeting. John Wesley would write that he was never the same again. That when the Spirit of God came, they prayed through the night. Can you imagine that? They prayed through the night. And the Spirit of God descended. And both him and Charles, the Spirit of God fell upon him and Charles. And John Wesley would go forward now. And he would establish the Methodist Church. 
Not the Methodist church we see today, and God forgive me if I said something wrong, but a Methodist church that was conceived in power and in authority, in authority and in the might of the Holy Spirit. John and Charles Wesley had an encounter with God. John would preach across the world. Charles would write over a hundred hymns to go for that. I think of D.L. Moody, a shoe salesman, a man who was semi-interested in the things of God, felt the call upon God upon his life to go out and preach the gospel. So he goes out and preaches the gospel. And he would fill up halls in the city of Chicago, get 2,000, 3,000 men. He wasn't a pastor, by the way. He was just an evangelist who preached the Word of God. And he would do it during the day. And, and, and all of the big convention centers would be filled. Until one day, two old ladies sat in the very first row. And as, and as D.L. Moody was preaching, these two old ladies would sit there like this. So finally intrigued, he goes up to the two ladies. He said, I must ask you, you seem like very pleasant ladies. What are you smiling about? And one of the two ladies said, we're smiling and praying that you would get the power. And D.L. Moody said to him, what power? They said, the power of God would come upon you. He said, what are you talking about? I got 4,000 people here. I got 3,000 the night before. I have 5,000 the week before. What power? And they just smiled and said, we pray that the power of God would come upon you. Well, something happened with D.L. Mooney. It kind of stayed with him. And he began asking God, Father, I'm praying, what is that power? Father, if you would send me that power. Well, the following night was the night of the great Chicago fire where almost two-thirds of the city of Chicago had burnt down. It started in Mrs. O'Leary's barn with the cow that kicked over the lantern, or so they say. But shortly thereafter, D.L. Moody comes up to New York City, and he comes collecting funds for the victims of the great Chicago fire. It was an ordinary day. It was a typical New York City day. And as he was on Wall Street and Broad, now, all of us former New Yorkers, we know where that is. Matter of fact, I used to go down there and debate people in the street. Uh, there, it's just something weird on that corner. It used to be religious debates. And, you know, I used to go and antagonize myself. But on the corner of Wall Street and Broad, D.L. Mooney records of such a great event I cannot even speak of. The power of God, the presence and the glory of God descended upon me as I walked down the street. He says, of that bliss I cannot speak of. And I think the most amazing thing about D.L. Moody was simply this. He said, I had to beg God to stay his hand lest the glory of God would consume me and I would die. Man, I'd like that experience, wouldn't you? That the power of God would fall. D.L. Moody goes on to write, Afterwards, I preached the same messages. 
but now they were anointed with power. And where we saw 2,000 come, we saw 5,000. Where we saw 5,000, we saw 10,000. The power of God went and revival followed. Of course, we also know of a good Jewish boy or a good Jewish man who on the road to Damascus was going there to arrest Christians and throw them into jail to beat them. This particular man was well, well educated by the finest rabbi of his time. And he was so zealous for Judaism that he saw Christians as the biggest threat to Judaism. I want to point out something about this man. He was not looking for God. He was not a believer in God. He was entrapped in the legalism and the formalism of Pharisaic Judaism. Until one day on that road to Damascus, the Spirit of God descended and he was literally knocked off his horse. And I think you know who I'm talking about, the great Apostle Paul. And a bright light came down from heaven. And the word of God came down and said, Saul, Saul, why dost thou persecuteth me? And Saul said, Lord, who are you? And he said, I am Jesus, the one you're persecuting. He goes on to tell him, you are a chosen vessel of mine to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And he blinds him. And he says, you're to go into this town, you're going to ask for this name, for this man, and he's going to return the sight. Well, we know the rest is history, don't we? Paul was never to be the same again. Paul was changed permanently and effectively with his encounter with God. And I submit to you today that if you come to that place where you have that encounter with God, you effectively will be changed by the power of God that descends upon you. Now I'm going to uh, say something. This is not myth. This is not theory. This didn't happen in the old days, but it doesn't happen today. It's not God who move, it's us. We move from God. We continue to drift from God. And it's time that the church begin to believe all the things that we say we believe and trust God to do a work of revival, renewal, repentance in our hearts and lives. The message today is having an encounter with God. And we're going to see from one who had a genuine encounter with God, the greatest prophet Moses. And we're going to look at it and see what was that encounter about. Now I want to say something before we jump into the text. And it's simply this. I fear, and this is a fear of mine, but I fear that the church, global, not limited to, us here at Calvary. But I fear that the church has become bored with God. That's my fear. And I fear that we think we know everything there is to know about God. And we can no longer be moved by God. We can no longer be stirred by God. 
And so if that's your heart today, if your heart today is, oh, but you don't understand, Pastor, I try, I try, I try, I try. Listen, flush that away. Get it out of your mind. If you are going to be moved by God, if you are going to be used by God, then prepare your mind, prepare your soul to hear and to receive the Word of God. Because I'll tell you what, and you've heard me say this a million times over, we have more books, we have more conferences, we have more videos, we have more streaming channels, YouTube channels, we have more preachers, we have more seminaries, we have more Bibles being printed, tracts being printed, all these other different things being printed, but where in the world is the power of God that changes lives? So read with me now in Exodus chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. Now Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of the bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. And so Moses said, I'm, um, um, so Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight while the bush is not burned up. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Let's take a look at this gentleman Moses, this prophet of God, right? We don't know too much about him. We know very little, as a matter of fact. We know that when he was a child in fear of being killed, he was put into the Nile and the daughter of Pharaoh took him and raised him. He was raised a prince of Egypt. He had the finest of everything. Finest education, finest nursemaids. He was raised and theoretically he could have succeeded Pharaoh and become Pharaoh of the singular most powerful nation on the planet Earth. Now we also know that Scripture tells us at one point he begins to see the suffering of his uh, brethren, the former Hebrews. And consequently, he sees an Egyptian really treating a Hebrew really bad. And Moses jumps in and gets into a tussle with this guy and he kills him. And he takes his body and he buries it in the sand. The next day, he he sees two Hebrews fighting with one another. And he said, hey guys, what are you doing? Like, why are you fighting with one another? You're brethren. And they go, what are you going to do? You're going to kill us as well? Knowing that the truth was out, he leaves. Moses spends 40 years in the wilderness. 40 years in the desert. 40 years being a shepherd. The very thing that was the most contemptible thing to an Egyptian. Now I want to ask you a question. During those 40 years, do you think Moses said, 
Listen, I tried to do the right thing. I tried to protect the Hebrew people. Now I'm run out of my native land. I'm out here in the wilderness. I'm tending sheep and goats. I'm pretty sure those lonely nights up as he's keeping watch over the flock, I'm pretty sure those lonely nights weren't filled with a lot of intellectual debate. I'm sure probably the, uh, the most intense conversation he may have had would have been with a sheep, may have been... <laughs> But he was on the backside of the desert, as the Scripture likes to say. I love what A.W. Tozer says. A.W. Tozer makes this statement, prophets are made on the backside of the desert. Prophet men and women of God are made on the backside of the desert. They're not made in the glory. They're not made in the forefront. They're made in the lonely hours. They're made alone. And so I venture to, uh, I venture to say that the day that Moses woke up, and he was out in the fields with the flock. And when he first laid eyes on the burning bush, I venture to say it was just like any other day. I'm venturing to say that God, he didn't wake up that morning and say, God's going to speak to me today. I just know it. I feel it in my bones. It was just a normal day. A normal day in the wilderness. A normal day away from the activity. A normal day away from all the hoopla. Until one thing happened. He sees a bush that is burning. Now this is, an, this is, by the way, I want you to know, this is an ordinary bush. There's nothing remarkable about the bush itself. It would be a bush that would be typified in that type of geography in that day. But he notices something about the bush. In verse 2 it says, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of the bush, and he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but yet it was not consumed. Miracle. Miracle's going on there, right? Bush is on fire, but it's not being consumed. And I'm willing to bet in the desert, if a bush is on fire, it's going to go on fire, it's going to burn out pretty quick. But he is captivated. And God draws Moses with that supernatural sight. He draws him. And look at verse 4. Now Moses said, he's intrigued now, Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight Why the bush is not burned up. Notice what God used. God used fire. To draw him. God used a miracle to draw him. Now, God knew Moses was his man. And God knew that now it was Moses' time. And so in the providence and in the sovereignty of God, God said, okay, here it goes. We're going we're to put the plan in action now. Here goes the burning bush. And this fire is going to captivate him. And this fire is going to draw him in. And it did just exactly what God had intended him to do. Because we see clearly, Moses said to himself, I must go and see this thing. First step, God draws. Look at verse 4. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called him. 
Oh, praise God for that three words. God called him. God called you if you were in Christ Jesus. God called you if you're following Christ by faith and grace. God called you to come. That efficacious call, that effectual call of God summoned out to all of us while we were lost in our trespasses and sins. But I'm going to submit something else to you today. God calls you after you have been saved. God calls you to do great things for Him. God calls you to submit to the Holy Spirit. God calls you to pray for revival. God calls you to minister to another person. God calls you to be a testimony for Him. And notice how God called Him. I don't want this to be lost here. How did God call Moses? Very simply, He called him by name. God didn't say, hey, you. Hey, you, come over here. Hey, 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 come here. No, God knew. God called. God always works with intentionality. Therefore, God knew Moses was his man. Therefore, God said, Moses. Moses. There was a day in my life when God called me by name. There was a day in your life, if you are saved in Christ Jesus, that God calls you by name. He may have said Ricky. He may have said Nancy. He may have said Mike. But he called us and we knew it. We knew it instantaneously that this was the voice of God. And God is summoning me. And God is calling out to me. Listen, we're living in crazy times. It's not just the chaos of the times. What it is is that the enemy is using preoccupation with stuff and with things and with noise. Most people have great difficulty sitting still in a room by themselves. They have great difficulty sitting at home, not playing music, not doing anything. Some people are very, very uncomfortable in silence. On a Wednesday night Bible uh, on a Wednesday night prayer meeting one night, after we had finished praying, the Lord impressed upon my heart, said, just sit in the silence. So I told everybody, we're going to sit in the silence. Don't be uncomfortable. God is here. Let's be still and let us know that He is God. And what consequently happened was a realization that the Spirit of God was in our midst. And people began to weep. And people began to praise the Lord. And it was glorious. And it was magnificent. Now you have prayer meetings. They say, all right, you know, oh Lord, I thank you for this. I thank you for that. Lord, oh bless Antilly. Lord, you know, do this, do that. Okay, Lord, thank you, praise you. Oh man, I gotta go. Psalm 46, 10, we are to be still and know that He is God. And if we're quiet and if we sit... With, by the way, 
intentionality, we will hear the voice of God. My wife always says to me, you don't listen to me. I said, no, I, I listen to you, I just don't pay attention. We can't take that approach to God. If you want to know God, you've got to spend time with God. If you want to know God, you've got to be able to hear the voice of God. Praise God, God called Moses and He called him by name. Want to know another, another situation where this happened? Think about the resurrection. Mary Magdalene goes to the grave and she sees Jesus and she's prevented from recognizing who it is, supposing him to be the gardener. And he says, why, what, what, woman, why are you crying? And she says, they've taken away my Lord. Sir, if you know where he is, please tell me. Please tell me so that I will go with him. And Jesus turns to her and he says, Mary. All of a sudden, the light bulbs went off. All of a sudden, the effectual call of Christ, the recognizing of that name, caused Mary to pause and Mary to fall down and she cries out, Rabbi, Rabbi, and she clings to him, rejoiced that she had seen the risen Savior. And by the way, let me submit this to you. That if you do hear the voice of God, if God calls to you, if you respond, don't be surprised if everybody, including people in the church, will not believe you. Mary went back to tell the disciples, Hey, I've seen the Lord! He's risen! He's risen just as He said! What did they say? Get out of here. You're nuts. Maybe you're overwhelmed in your grief. You didn't see anything. Don't be surprised. Moses was called up and Moses was called out. The Lord cried to him and said, he called him from the bush and he said, Moses, Moses. And the response of Moses is, here I am. What do we do when God calls us? What's our response? Are we here I am? Or are we rather, Lord, I'll do it, but not now. Give me five minutes, Lord. Let me take care of this. I'll do it. Moses responded with, here I am. And then something phenomenal happens. It's not just a call. It's not just a bulletin. It's not just a summons. Something far greater happens. Notice what happens in verse 5. Moses worships God. At the burning bush. Verse 5. Then he said, do not come near here. Remove the sandals from your feet. For the place on which you're standing is holy ground. Oh, 
when you spend time alone with the Lord, when you spend time alone in silence before God, when your prayer and when you're eagerly searching for the Lord, and the Lord does indeed call, then you know at that moment that you are indeed on holy ground. And what should happen is that you should come to that place where you fall on your face and you come and you worship God. There is so much talk about worship in the church. We have worship leaders. We have worship songs. We have schools of worship. How do you have a school of worship? That which comes out of the heart is indeed worship. And let me tell you something, as a human being, you are made to worship. Now, you're either going to worship the one true living God, or you're going to worship that which is false. But if you were born a human being, you were created to worship. Redemption gives you the place. Salvation gives you the right to come before the throne of God and worship the living God the right way, the right God, the holy God. This is why we come to church on Sunday. This is precisely why we come Sundays to worship. Primary, preliminary thing is to worship God. We don't come to sing along with a bunch of songs. We don't come just to walk through tradition and formality. We don't hear the preaching of the Word just so that we can do what's good and pat ourselves on the back. We come here to worship God. And I pray, beginning with our church, that we really come to understand this point. We don't take attendance. There are no demerits for absence. But we do indeed come here to worship the living God. In the midst of this service, Right now, when we go into communion, when we sing our closing song, when we do the Scripture reading, it is all about worshiping God. And if you're hungry for God, if you're desirous for God, if you want a genuine, spontaneous move of God in your life, then you too will come with an appetite. Not saying, oh, i got to go to church, but I'll be out of there by 12. Therefore, I could start lunch at 12.30. No, but you would come with an appetite saying, oh my goodness, what does God have to say to me today? I want to hear the Word of the Holy Spirit. I want to hear the Word of God. Is God going to say something? Is God going to do something today in church that's going to change my life? I want an encounter with God. The holy God tells him, take off your sandals, Moses. You're standing on holy ground. Take them off. Worship. You know, it's an interesting thing. One of the reasons or one of the traditions of the day was removing the sandals was a sign of a servant. Oh, that the church would remove the sandals. Oh, that we would see ourselves in the rightful place that we are indeed servants of Jesus Christ. That we would see ourselves in the rightful place that my life is hidden in Christ. 
that the life I live, I no longer live, but Christ liveth in me. Notice verse 6. The Lord says to him, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And I want you to note the next sentence. Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Let me share something with you, just so we clear the air on this. God was not the bush. God was not the fire. But God was in the bush, and God was in the fire. Now, if there's any doubt in Moses' mind that maybe he's listening to something or this is an illusion or his mind is deceiving himself, it all disappears with that last sentence in verse 6. God identifies himself. God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There is no mistaking that. Moses knew immediately whom he was dealing with. You know, the Puritans had a term for this. They called it the crisis of the encounter. I love that term. The crisis of the encounter. When you meet God, there's a crisis. You behold a holy, sovereign, omnipotent God And immediately when the light and the glory of God is cast down on you, you see yourself as wretched, as sinful, as inadequate, as a person who is not prepared for the task to have an encounter with the living God. At the end of verse 6, when God makes that pronouncement, when God declares exactly who He is. Notice Moses didn't say, oh boy, this is awesome, God. I'm so glad that we're together here. Hey, you're my best friend. You're my buddy. Let's do some fun things together. How about we drill up a few tunes, Lord, and we rock out a little? No, what did Moses do? He knew in that moment that God who he heard about, that God who maybe he heard about when he was young, maybe he heard about him when he was older, but he knew one thing for sure. He knew that that God now was reality. That he is now engaged with the living, all-powerful, sovereign God. And he was fearful. My mentor Frank Milano usually says this all the time. I've said this before. He said, you know what the difference is between demons and believers? I said, what? He said, you know, the Bible tells us that demons believe and they tremble. The difference in the church today is we believe and we don't even tremble at all. And that goes to a a thought process that I'm good enough. 
I'm fine. If you hear the way Christ is preached in most churches, if you hear the way God is preached in most churches, you will hear of His, He's your buddy. He's your friend. Come alongside, man. Oh, you don't have to be scared. You don't have to be scared. God is your best friend. He is, he is presented as some benign, like, benevolent grandfather on, on, under whom all the children are misbehaving and everybody's trying to get control and he's going, that's okay, let them go. Kids are kids. That's not the God of the Bible. Moses in his encounter with God shrinks in humility. Let me share something. If we're going to have a genuine, spontaneous, authentic move of God among us, one of the first evidences is that we too will shrink in the presence of God. We will fall at the feet of God in fear and in adoration. In love and in adornment. And Moses hides his face. Verse 7, And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their suffering. So I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from uh, that land to a good and spacious land to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. And he was speaking of the Israelites. And now behold, the cry of the Son of Israel has come to me further, has come to me furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. Therefore, come now. And I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. Now this just sounds like narrative. But there's more to the narrative. The first thing we see is that the Lord said, I have seen the affliction. They had been enslaved over 500 years. It probably would have appeared that God is nowhere to be found. Maybe some of you are going through some type of situation that's been ongoing for a number of years. Perhaps even a number of decades. And maybe you've resigned yourself to say that God is no longer to be found. He doesn't listen. I stop asking. But I submit to you today that God does indeed hear. God does indeed know. God does indeed see our afflictions. And God has a plan, right? What was God's plan for Israel? He's going to take them out of Egypt and He's going to move them into a land flowing with milk and honey. And by the way, the land belongs to somebody else today, but it's going to belong to my people on that day. And I'm going to give them what they need and I am going to deliver them. And all the world is going to know it. 
Most theology today tells you that, you know, God does not want you to suffer. God does not want you to go through trial. God does not want you to go through tribulation. I know many of you in this church are going through seasons of testing right now, seasons of trial right now that have been long, that have been hard, that have been perpetual. And you're seeking God and you're seeking God to the point that you're exhausted from seeking God and you're saying, Lord, Lord, when will you step in? When will you deliver from this situation? And I'm going to tell you that God will. But in the midst of those circumstances, God is working. I know we hate to hear this. We're an instant generation. When we ask for deliverance, we want it instantly. When we ask for healing, we want it instantly. But we as Christians are eternal people. And God is ever working and God is ever fashioning us to conform us into the image of Jesus Christ, His beloved Son. And He uses those trials, those pressures, and He uses those things for the glory of His name so that when deliverance does indeed come, what comes out of our mouth is, boy, I toughed that one out. No, what comes out of our mouth is, God has indeed delivered. He has indeed worked. He did hear my cry. He did hear my oppression. And all of the glory and all of the honor and all of the praise would be unto God Almighty. But in the text here, there's a little bit of a twist. And I'm pretty confident that this hit Moses like a two-by-four across the head. And it comes... In verse 10, the Lord says, Therefore, come now, and I will send you to Pharaoh. Some of you younger people are not going to get this, but when I was a young man, there used to be a hysterical show on TV called The Honeymooners with Jackie Gleason. Black and white, imagine that. No high definition. No definition at all. And Jackie Gleason was a bus driver from Brooklyn, by the way. And his best friend was Ed Norton. And Jackie Gleason had a problem like a lot of us husbands. He had foot and mouth disease. And many times he would say something that would get him in trouble. And his wife, Alice... would usually have a seat in there where she starts yelling at at Jackie Gleason. And Jackie Gleason had this hysterical, comedic thing he would do. When she would be yelling at him and she would be asking him for his excuse, Jackie Gleason would go, humana, 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 humana. It was funny to us older people. Something tells me here in verse 10 that when the Lord said, come now, I'm going to send you to Pharaoh. That Moses probably went, what? Look at what God's doing. God takes the ordinary and God makes the extraordinary. 
Who is Moses? Moses, he's a shepherd. He's a shepherd man. He's 80 years old. Who is Moses now to go to the most powerful world leader and demand, let my people go? I didn't make that up. Because if you read verse 11, but Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? Oh, church. Ain't that the question we always ask of ourselves? Who am I? Lord, you got the wrong guy. I don't have the pedigree. I don't have the education. I don't have the station in life. Lord, who am I? I have a compromised past. Lord, who am I? You, you know the things I did in the, in, 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 before I was saved. Lord, who am I? I'm a nobody. Get somebody who's at least a somebody and take the somebody and make him someone who's going to go to Pharaoh. And we've all been there. We have all been there. We've all been in that place where we've questioned what God's motive was. But God gives him an answer. And the answer is this. Verse 12. And he said, Certainly I will be with you. And this shall be a sign to you that it is I who have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt. You shall worship God at this mountain. The most amazing thing about God is He'll take the routine and make it miraculous. He will take the ordinary and do extraordinary things. God will take the simple to confound the wise. God will use the foolish things of this world to drive the wisdom of this world insane. And God could do it regardless of any person, regardless of any limitations, because with God, nothing is impossible. Moses, although he was dumbfounded, Moses was still usable in the hand of God. What are you, what are you talking about? He was a murderer, right? You mean to tell me God could use a murderer? Yep. yep. You mean to tell me that God could use a guy who had a really bad past or a woman that had a really bad past? Yes, if any man is in Christ. All the old things have passed away. Everything has become new. Do you say praise God every time you hear that, voice, uh, that verse? All the old things, all the old things have passed away. Behold, everything becomes new. God has been putting a verse on my heart recently. I think I shared it either Tuesday night or Wednesday night. 
Isaiah 43. Do not call to mind the former things. Behold, I will do a new work. And will you not see it? I am the God who makes roadways in the wilderness. I am the God who makes rivers in the desert. When I become discouraged, when I look down and say, Lord, how are these things going to be? Lord, how are you going to move? How are you going to do this? How are you going to bring revival? How are you going to grow the church? How are you going to do this? Lord, I don't know. I can't figure it out. My mind goes crazy within me. The Lord reminds me, behold, do not call to mind the former things. Behold, I'm going to do a new work. Will you not see it? I am the God who makes roadways in the wilderness. I am the God who makes rivers in the desert. And I apprehend And I hold to that truth. And I say, Lord, if you're the one who says it, then I'm going to believe it, Lord. What is the circumstance in your life that you cannot believe? What is the thing in your life that you cannot pass? Do you believe that God is indeed who he said he is? That God would say, come on now, I'm going to take you and I'm going to overcome this circumstance. I'm going to take you, you're going to overcome it. Trust in me, I am the God who makes roadways in the wilderness, rivers in the desert. Next week we'll take a look at some of the excuses that Moses made. But I want to point something out to you. I want to just share something with you. We see this throughout Scripture. I want to show you some of the similarities between Moses' encounter with God and the early church's encounter with the Holy Spirit. We saw today that Moses was drawn by the appearance of fire. The bush was burning, but it was not consumed. Acts 2.2 tells us, And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house that they were sinning. And what appeared like fire, cloven tongues of fire, rested upon their head. Moses worshipped God at the burning bush at Pentecost. The church worshipped God at the giving of the Holy Spirit. Moses was amazed and in awe of God at the burning bush. At Pentecost, the Scripture says in Acts 2.12, and they all continued in amazement with great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? At the burning bush, Moses, through his encounter with God, is transformed. At Pentecost, Peter, the failure, the denier, The one who betrayed Jesus himself, not in the sense of Judas, but by denying him. Him, the loudmouth, and the eleven are transformed by the power of God and the Holy Spirit. Because of the burning bush, Moses will deliver a people from bondage. Because of Pentecost, The disciples, the apostles, and the early church 
will deliver God's people from the kingdom of darkness and the bondage of sin. We need to be that people. We need, we, we, the collective we that are in this room. We need to be that people. We need to pray for God to do a genuine work of revival in our hearts and lives in church. We need to keep asking. We need to keep pleading. We need to keep begging God to move us. That never stops. The mission of the church is to advance the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is advanced as the people of God submit to the will of God and become obedient to God for the glory of God. It's not about having X amount of things. It's not about having X amount of amenities. And the way we advance the kingdom of God is to have an encounter with God. Now, there's two ways you could have that encounter. One, if you're saved. If you're saved, then you get alone with God and you plead God and you say, Father, move, move, move for the glory of your name. Father, bring revival. Father, let your spirit fall upon this place. Father, let your spirit fall upon me, God. Fill me like you did D.L. Moody. Oh, God, wouldn't the greatest thing be that I have to beg you to stop? And I'm believing God for that. And let me tell you something. If I live to be 100, I drop dead. I'm going to believe God for that. Because it's going to happen. That's number one. There's another way to have an encounter with God. By repenting of your sins and turning to Christ in faith and asking God to save you. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there's no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. Acts 16.31 tells us, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. That belief is not intellectual. That belief is not some, an accumulation of data points. That belief is not understanding doctrine. That belief is entrusting yourself completely and wholly to the finished work of Christ on the cross and trusting no other, including yourself, and falling upon the mercy of God. And you'll have an encounter with God. But church, as believers, I beg you, I implore you, I don't even know how to say it the right way and muster up the right level of sincerity, but we must, we must as believers entrust ourselves to God to have a true encounter with the living God that we as Christians would be changed, awakened from this slumber, and come into the fullness of the Holy Spirit. We need to be that people. I'll close with this. There is a profound difference between knowing about God and knowing God. You've heard me say this. This isn't new. There are going to be many people that know great doctrine, many people who like good preaching, read good books, do all the right things. 
And they know a lot about God, but they don't know God. I could tell you everything there is to know about going into battle. I could tell you the type of weapons the enemy uses. I could tell you the strategy the enemy uses. I could tell you what you should do, what you shouldn't do. But it's only the person that has been in combat that understands and knows what combat is truly about. The noise, the smell, the sounds. From me, it's just theoretical. But from him, it is reality. God's heart and desire, listen to me well with this one point. I want you to hear this. God's heart and desire is not that we would be a people that know about God. God's heart and desire is that we would be a people who know God and are known by God. And if you settle for anything else, you're settling for less. The prophet Jeremiah says this, let him who boasts, Jeremiah 9.24, let him who boasts boast of this, that he knows and understands me. For I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, righteousness on the earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. Deuteronomy 7.5, the Lord says, Know therefore that the Lord your God, He is God, the faithful God who keeps His covenant, His loving kindness to a thousand generations with those who love Him and keep His commandments. And the Apostle Paul made this great statement that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His suffering being conformed unto his death when Moses experienced God in the burning bush God was no longer history God was no longer theoretical God was no longer doctrine no longer a thing spoken of by others God was personal God was experiential God was real God was available God was living and it is this truth that transformed Moses and it is this truth that has transformed many lives through the new birth found only in Jesus Christ. Are you settling for less? Do you believe in the living God? Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Father, as we come to you this day, Lord, and as we come before the table of the Lord, prepare our hearts, Lord, and Father, if there are any here who don't know you, may Lord, pierce the hearts, oh God, pierce the hearts of this church that we would enter into the fullness of who you are. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.